This morning, uh, we are continuing our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. We've uh, kind of been taking a slow walk through this book over the past few months, focusing on, on how we see the gospel laid out in this book through the life of Moses. The, the message of Deuteronomy is to essentially to listen to God, to obey him, and to love him with all of your heart, your soul, your strength. That's, that's essentially, if you could summarize the book, that's it. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, you'll recall Pastor Jeremy uh, did a terrific job of reminding us of the importance of remembering the Lord from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Now, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy as, as a whole, you'll notice that soon after chapter 8 ends, we enter into this phase of the book where a good portion of it is focused in on, uh, on laws. Now, admittedly, portions of Scripture throughout the first five books of the Bible uh, that walk us through these various laws, sometimes they're not the most engaging part of the Bible to read. However... There is still great value for us to study these laws. Some of them we read and they make sense to us immediately. Like for instance, Deuteronomy 18.10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That seems pretty reasonable, right? Not going to burn your kids as an offering. Got it. Cool. But then there's other laws that we read about. For instance, in Exodus 23, 19, that says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay. Um, I've never done that. Um, so check, right? But it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But, but really, there's really not much difference for us today, is there? Like, for instance, like, we know it's a law to wear your seatbelt, you, you just do it, right? You, there's a law, it makes, it makes sense to us, there's a law for obeying the speed limit. We, we realize that and we, we live by it. It's a law not to steal. These are part of our everyday lives. But we also have some laws that just don't make a lot of sense to us. For instance, in Florida specifically, did you know that it's actually illegal to skateboard without a license? It's a true story. Listen, you can also, in, in, in the Tampa, Tampa Bay area, you, it's a law that you cannot eat cottage cheese after 6 p.m. on Sunday. <laughs> that should be a law everywhere, by the way. That's gross. <laughs> Listen, this is a good one to take note of, especially when you're hanging out in downtown Pensacola. This is a true, true law. You must pay the same vehicle fee for a parking meter if you tie an elephant to it. I don't know. Like these, are, these are funny and they're strange, but listen, what's even funnier is the fact that these laws were written because someone actually did them at some point and there was no law against it. Right? No one is sitting around thinking, we should probably write a law about an elephant tied to a parking meter. No, that's been something that someone did. They said one time, like, I don't wanna pay this parking fee. I got an idea. Let's just tie up an elephant. Like, who does this, right? But they were written because there was not a law for it. That's why laws exist. They exist to modify behavior to help us know what is and what is not acceptable. And that brings us back to these laws that Moses is delivering to the Israelites. 
Although sometimes difficult to read, these laws have a purpose of showing God's people how to live in a way that sets them apart from everyone else. Which brings us to our text this morning. So we're gonna kind of jump from where we were at last week in Deuteronomy 6 and 8. We're gonna jump over to Deuteronomy 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We're gonna be looking at verses 22 and 23 as we talk through a message entitled The Curse and the Cure. We read uh, these words for us. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 through 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word, and we pray that it will uh, be alive, and it will be sharp this morning, and it will um, train us, correct us, Lord, make us better followers of you. So God, we give you our time now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we dive into this text together this morning, it's, in, it's important that we understand right from the start the history of the curse, the history of the curse. There, there are two theological truths that we need to pay attention to in this verse. First, uh, there is the theological truth of the curse and identifying what that is. And then there's a second thing that we need to talk about in this verse, and that's the, the, the desecration of the land. So first, what is this curse that's being referenced in this verse when it says a hanged man is cursed by God? Well, to find the root of that answer, you actually have to travel back to Genesis chapter 3 when we read about the ultimate fall of man. You see, when God created man, when God created a woman, he, he warned Adam and Eve, you can, you can have it all. You can, all of this is yours. There's one thing that you can't do. You do not eat off the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you'll die. But as long as you don't do that one thing, you're golden. Just everything else is, is fine. But the serpent tells Eve, no, God's a liar. You're not going to die. Matter of fact, uh, you are going to become like God. And so Adam and Eve believed the serpent and they ate. You see what happened there? As long as Adam and Eve believed God, they would have life. They would have abundant life, full of joy and sweet fellowship with the Father, uh, trusting God with all of their heart, and it would have protected them. But when they listened to a deceiver and believed they started trusting in their own understanding. And it opened them to a world of horror. Their eyes, and consequently the eyes of all of us descendants, were open to evil that none of us have the capacity to grasp. Fear and self-worship turned, uh, turned us pathologically selfish. We become susceptible to all sorts of deception. And as a result, God in Genesis chapter three pronounced a curse on them that, that we who sin like them have inherited. 
death has entered the human experience and with it all sorts of affliction and trouble. So you take that knowledge and then you fast forward over to Deuteronomy and you realize that these laws are being put into place because all mankind is now cursed. But notice that these verses do not say that the guilty person was killed on an actual tree. No, in actuality, the crucifixion wasn't brought in as the means of corporal punishment until the Romans took over. Back in this day, in Moses' day, corporal punishment usually happened through the means of stoning. So a person uh, does a crime that's punishable by death, they are killed. Then, most of the time, they would be suspended in a tree. Well, why do that? Cole McLaughlin says it well, the mention of such a practice was not mere conjecture, but rather a vivid reminder for Israelites of the horrific fate of those who showed flagrant disregard for God's law by perpetrating a capital offense. In other words, this was a picture of things to come if you decide to commit a crime against God. I liken this to when I catch a snake in my yard. We are a strict, all snakes are bad family. And so if I find one, it is going to die, okay? Save me from the emails and the pictures and all the things about, oh, this is a good snake. No, it's not. And it's in my yard, it's a dead snake, okay? And so I kill them. But most of the time, when I find a snake, I do three things to it. The first thing is I go grab my shovel. Um, The second thing is I cut it in half and That's actually a lie. I mutilate it, right, in in a lot of pieces because I ain't fooling around with a snake. And then I scoop it up in the shovel and I'm I'm carrying it around the yard. There's a little wooded area behind our house and I'm dumping it over the fence. And the whole time I'm dumping it over the fence so his little buddies see, if you come into this yard, this is what happens. And I 100% am talking smack the whole time. I'm like, you tell your boys about me because if you come in this yard, this is you. This is what's happening to you. Like, That's the idea of what's happening here. As Israelites saw the body of the capital offender hanging in curse, they would be reminded of the importance of covenant faithfulness to God. And those who did not obey God would be subject to his wrath. But but then there's a second truth here that we need to look at, and that's the defilement of the land that's mentioned in verse 23. In, In verse 23, why is the land's holiness so important? Well, we're gonna come back to that in a few minutes, but, but simply put, it's, it's, it was so holy because it was God's land. The, the holy land which the Israelites are preparing to enter is his dwelling place. These requirements reveal to the people God's utter separation from sin and uncleanness. He cannot coexist with ungodliness. He can't coexist with sin. So what then does this have to do with us? Well, because of the fall of man that we talked about a few minutes ago from the book of Genesis, when we read words such as, for a hanged man is cursed by God, friends, that's talking about us. It's not just some random Israelite who broke an old covenantal law. No, you can insert your name into that statement. According to the law and as a result of our unholiness due to man's brokenness, we are cursed, all of us. And this 
poses a really big problem for us until we flip over to the New Testament and we read what Paul writes in Galatians, which takes us to our second point this morning, and that's the fulfillment of the curse. The fulfillment of the curse. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. Says this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, what Paul does, beginning in verse 10, is showing us why it's so problematic to rely on religious law, to rely on religious practices as a means of salvation. In other words, whereas we are super thankful that you are here this morning, being here in this room does not bring you salvation. If you, if you tithe, tithe, tithing does not bring you salvation. Deciding to not watch certain movies or to not say certain words in an attempt to do better does not bring salvation. That is what sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton refer to as moralistic therapeutic deism. No, those things should be a byproduct of your true salvation, but they don't save you. That, that is a civic religion, the faith that demands and asks nothing from its followers. So see, the thing about the law is that it's not faith-driven. It is obedience-driven. Jews were commanded to obey the law, not to believe it. And, and that's the problem, isn't it? It's impossible for anybody to fully obey the entire law. And if we can't perfectly obey the law, then the law falls short as a standard for salvation. Now, for a lot of us, this is where legalism lives. For, for, for me personally, I, I struggled for years with this mindset of having to do enough for God so that he wouldn't be mad at me. If I just did these things and I just kept doing them, then God would, he would still be cool with me. He just wouldn't be mad at me all the time. I, I went to a, a Christian school during my middle school and most of my high school um, years and it was super rules heavy. You know what I mean? Like it was, they would, you know, we, they would say it in, in like kind of, anyway, like you can read this translation of the Bible and if you read that translation, you're, you're, you're good to go. But you read this other one, oh, that's bad, right? If you listen to certain types of Christian music, you're good. But certain types of Christian music's bad, right? So Stephen Curtis Chapman, oh, you're good, right? DC Talk, oh, no, man, 
That's the devil's music, right? Like, so there's all of these rules. And so I found myself in this constant mindset of doing the right things to make God not smite me. And so like, TLC comes out with a new album. And I'm sitting here singing, don't go chasing waterfalls. And I'm thinking, I'm not chasing waterfalls, I'm chasing Jesus, right? I'm go- Wait, is there, is there waterfalls in the Bible even? I don't know. Then I'm like, oh, I've got to repent because I've messed this thing up, right? And so this, this it put me in a, listen, it, I, I joke about it, it put me in a bad spot. So I was probably mid-20s before I got my mind around what we're actually talking about today. Like you can't do enough. In our fallen, sinful condition, we are powerless to keep the demands of the law, which means if our salvation is predicated on how well we keep it, then we are doomed. And that's why this way of works, trying to do good in order to gain Jesus, is a dead-end road. But thankfully, the text doesn't end Right there, and we get a much needed ray of light with verse 13. The very first word gives us a whole lot of hope, and that word is Christ. Christ. And with that one word, the whole tone of the passage changes. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, and then Paul quotes our text from Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in this text, Paul is relaying three aspects of the cross that are relevant to the law's inability to save us. And the first one is this, he tells us what Christ did. He tells us what Christ did. He said, in his death, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeemed here means to purchase by paying a price. So in his death on the cross, Jesus delivered us from the curse of being unable to consistently obey God's holy law, which is a direct result of sin. So he tells us what Christ did. That leads us to a second aspect of the atonement, how Christ did it. You see, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The, the ransom, the, the price was paid by his death on the cross. You see, in the New Testament period, a cross was often referred to as a tree because it was made of, of wood. And the, and the Jews of that day saw death by hanging on a cross in the same way their forebears saw death by hanging on a tree. In other words, whoever was punished that way had been cursed by God. And Paul is saying here, that's right. That's absolutely right. But it wasn't his own curse that he bore. It was ours. It was yours. He died in our place. We call this substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us instead of us. But then finally, we're reminded of why Christ did it. We see that in verse 14 where it says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ died bearing our curse so that two things might happen. The first is that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, which simply means right standing before God based on faith. That's what that means. Second, 
Once you've been saved or justified by faith, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with the mention of the Holy Spirit, Paul now comes full circle in his argument. You see, for those of us who are legitimately saved and part of God's family, how do we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, we receive the Holy Spirit through faith. All because Christ took our curse on himself. So thus far this morning, we've talked through the history of the curse. And we've looked at how Jesus fulfilled the curse. But before we leave this morning, I want you to focus in and examine your own heart to make sure that you've been cured from the curse. You see... This is where the gift of Jesus moves from head knowledge to heart knowledge. It removes us from legalism and places us directly under mercy and grace. Flip back over with me to to Deuteronomy. And I want to show you something, something I think is pretty special. You see, we're told in, excuse me, we're told in verse 22 that the body of the deceased criminal must be taken down before night because, verse 23, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. There is great significance in the fact that the body was taken down in order to not defile the land. You see, this Signal the propitiation of God's wrath against the criminal. That that word means that a, a claim against you has been satisfied. Literally, wrath has been absorbed and goodwill has been replaced, has repl- goodwill has replaced ill will. Similarly, when, when Jesus was taken down from the cross one evening, 1,500 years later, God's wrath against us was satisfied. So while the capital offender was cursed for his own covenant breaking, Christ underwent the curse for the sins of his people, for us, for me, for you. And and just as Deuteronomy 21, 23 demanded that the guilty offender must be taken down before night, now the law demands that none who are in Christ be cursed Any longer. He has satisfied the law in his perfect obedience unto death. You see, Jesus was not merely delivered, he did not merely deliver us from mediocrity or emotional difficulty. He's delivered us from the corruption of death and the unbearable wrath of God. And as a result, our ultimate fate is not decay, but new life. So just as God's ancient dwelling place, the land, was made clean by the removal of the sinful offender's body from the tree. So God's current residence, i.e., the church, us, we are washed and cleansed by the work of Jesus on the cross. You see, he poured out his spirit on his people when his wrath against us was satisfied through Christ. And as a result, this cleansing work of his spirit takes effect in us and we become a place fit for a king. Jesus, in his 
ultimate and final sacrifice has made us clean. We are no longer cursed. We are cured and now presentable in the great king's court. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the question that this text presents to us is simply this. Do you believe? And I don't mean like just believe in your head. Like, do you believe? And if so, is your life completely surrendered to the lordship of Christ. I'm not, I'm not talking about trying harder to do better. That's, that's morality, right? Morality is usually determined by how you've perceived by others. Now, I'm talking about a belief in the holiness of God. As you guys have ever been at like a fast food restaurant and like the people in front of you are like ordering like a double cheeseburger and like a large fry and a milkshake and probably a cookie and they're like, eh, let's top this off with a Diet Coke. Like, it's ridiculous, right? Like, that's not really, just go all in at that point. The Diet Coke's not helping you any. Like, you're gonna go in, just go, it's just a little bit ridiculous, right? A belief in the holiness of God should expose this morality thinking as ridiculous as ordering that Diet Coke. You see, all good deeds performed tomorrow will not cancel out the sins of today. Only a high view of God's holiness can make that understanding possible. And when God is understood as holy, sin cannot go unpunished. And so as we get ready to close this morning, let me show you one more thing that I think is so important to not miss in verse 23. You see, the rule of prolonged exposure of the body that was that's mentioned overnight, don't leave it up overnight in verse 23. That, that rule is primarily in place to prevent defilement of the land, but many scholars also believe that it served as a secondary purpose of preventing excessive shame and dishonor to the offender. Matthew Henry says it this way, God would thus preserve the honor of human bodies and tenderness toward the worst of criminals. If you've ever questioned the love of God, let this serve as a reminder to you that even in death, because of breaking a covenantal law against God, he is still showing mercy to the offender. And if you are here this morning and you are feeling like you are too far gone, then you need to be reminded you are not too lost for God to find. You are not too dirty for God to cleanse. You are not too broken for God to fix. You're not too hurt for God to heal. You're not too far for God to reach. You're not too guilty for God to forgive. You are not too sinful for God to save. And so I close out with these words from Ephesians 2. But God is so rich in mercy 
And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. He came to reverse the curse of death. And this free gift is yours. It is yours if you believe. Now, there's, there's two groups of people in this room this morning. There's one group that would say, yeah, I, I got it. I, it's in the head. I've learned all the things. I know this, and I'm trying to do better. But you've never got to that spot of lordship, like giving, it's not moved from head to heart. Like it is just knowledge. It's not life. So that's one group of people. And you got another group of people who would say, yeah, cool, got it. Head, heart, lordship on it. What does this mean for us? Well, if you're in this group, you know, our prayer is that today's that day, right? That it moves from head to heart, that you realize like there is nothing that you can do to do this on your own. Like you have, you have to go through Jesus. That's the whole point. Then the other group, I would say to you, like if you're, life has been transformed where he is Lord of your life, then we gotta get to it. And we gotta stop acting like Jesus came and did all of this and, and we were gonna reap the benefits of it and check, we're, gonna, we're good. Now Jesus didn't go through all of this for us to receive salvation and then, and then just kick back and wait on heaven. No, we got a mission and we gotta get urgent we, because there's a lot more people in this group right here than in this group. And in God's sovereignty, he has chosen this group to reach this group. So we gotta get on it. So which group are you in? Because listen, I will say this and I'm done. If you would say you're in this group but there's no urgency to reach this group, I would really question, do you really get it? You were dead, no hope, until Jesus. And he has called us to this group with no other option. You believe or you don't. Let's believe and let's go get them.